This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to the Panel Borders Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM. Tonight's show is looking at Canadian comic book creators. And next is my interview with Quebec-based artist Estelle Bachelard. My interview with Estelle was recorded in a busy tea shop in front of a select audience in Kendall, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. So, so uh, we're, we're at the Lakes International Comic Art Fringe Festival in Brew Brothers, and I'm talking to Bat, the uh, author of It's Hard to Be a Girl. You're here as part of the Canadian contingent mm-hmm. at LICAF. And the comic that you're representing is uh, published by Sewing Penguin Press and is a collection of your short autobiographical strips mm-hmm. about the experience of being a woman in Quebec, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> how, how were they first disseminated? Was it a webcomic that's now been collected? Um, at the beginning, it's a, it's a webcomic. It's um, on Facebook. No, oh, okay. uh, before uh, I print my book, it's really um, many people um, uh, look my drawing and stories on Facebook. So what, that you kind of had a network of people who were giving you feedback on mm-hmm. Facebook, yep. and you thought actually I should yeah. present this to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just uh, nice people love my work so go uh, make a book (laughs) because you you do seem to have a natural gift as a cartoonist both in terms of laying out panels which tell a story but also you know the the subtle humor of telling little vignettes that represent not only moments from your life but do it in a humorous way I mean how did you kind of get into making comics Uh, that's a good question but thank you (laughs) (laughs) I I learned reading with with comic books, so it's all my my life since always. Mm. <laughs> so um, I read really much comic books. So and in my family we love that too, and we have a great sense of humor. I think mm. so. It's just natural. I think that's a yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're from the francophone mm-hmm. part of Canada, so presumably in English-speaking Canada, they get besieged by American comic books. But in places like Quebec, is it more European comics, like you know, Tintin and Asterix? Oh no, not not really. Um, you know, in Europe and or, or Belgium or France, for example, it's really Franco-Belge comic books. But in Quebec, it's very different. I think we have a, a, a more creativity, creativity on um, style and the, 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 uh, of drawing and story I think mm. um, we have really uh, we have our, um, our, our style in Quebec I think mm. I mean people talk <laughs> about um, Toronto as having an active comic scene is there a similar kind of network of cartoonists living and working in Quebec Honestly, uh, I don't know the, the, the comics in the rest of Canada. It's, um, uh, I, I need to uh, make my own works on that. <laughs> uh, when I, I saw a comic in Toronto, I, I think it's it's more like Quebec. The the graphic novel edition that's been published by Sewing Penguin collects your strips together. Uh, 
between two covers. Yeah. Seeing them as a complete work, were you surprised, you know, how well it works together as a narrative with kind of a beginning, a middle and an end? Because presumably you were putting them out one by one. Uh, yeah, it's different <laughs> because uh, my my stories on Facebook are not exactly the same in my book. Mm. I draw all my stories again for the book. Mm-hmm. I create new stories. I yeah, so uh, it, it's really different. But and in paper, I think it's more 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 uh, cute. <laughs> <laughs> In, I, I love the paper. I love this, uh, I have my my stories on on my my ends. In the internet, it's it's cool, but it's um, I don't know the word. Uh, you know, in internet, you you post your 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 comics, but uh, okay, people uh, like, but the comics disappear. So in paper, it's it's a uh, state. So the two main characters in the book are kind of fictionalized versions of yourself and your husband-to-be. How much of that was drawn from life and how much did you take an ordinary situation and think, how can I make this funny? Uh, I think it's 80% real. (laughs) I exaggerate the situation, but in general, it's my life and... uh, just to, to laugh on my on my life and my so uh, yes. <laughs> How does he feel about uh, the version of him on the page? He he likes it. He, he loves it. Yeah. And he, it's funny because uh, in in real life he, he makes um, different situation of uh, stupid situation and after just oh it's, it's just for your book you know it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's. Uh, is so he excuse, to become, like, uh, you know, version of himself. So <laughs> he helped me for my <laughs> scenario. <laughs> so, yeah. How much did you... You spoke about having to redraw certain parts mm-hmm. of it. And it seems that there's a bit of a structure that reoccurs in certain chapters where you have a page broken down into panels and then sort of the punchline will be a full page, mm-hmm. uh, a splash page. Mm-hmm. Was that a style that came naturally to you in the way of kind of constructing a joke? Yeah, for the book. <laughs> Just to have the, the punch. Um, natural, natural, naturellement. The use of colour in the book is really yeah. nice, the way that each chapter is kind of devoted to one yeah. colour wash. Was that something that came from the web version or is it something that you added to the book in order to give each chapter a sort of an identity? Uh, um, no, it's very um, on the web, mm. and uh, the style of the book is is uh, the same on my Facebook page. You know, I create um, comics for my Facebook page, but um, I need a, a style uh, very simple mm. because uh, it's not possible to to make a, a comic for Facebook on two hours. You know, so I need a style. Um, and create um, a comic on 15 min- minutes. Mm. So I, I I take this style and I just put it on my, my book. Mm. People it's like my signature. Mm. So, yeah. And I just think about <laughs> blue and pink on my mm. books just for uh, separate the, the, the chapters, yeah. Mm. Just for the graphic style. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, you're here as part of uh, a Canadian cohort um, mm. at LICAP. 
And so as such, in a way, you're kind of representing Canada to a certain extent as a cartoonist. What's that responsibility felt like? Uh, <laughs> I'm the only uh, person of Quebec here, I think. Yeah, we have other person on Canada, uh, of Canada, but I'm the only of Quebec. That's special. I, I'm th- I, don't, I, I don't know what is the, my, my emotion about, about that. That, that's weird. That's weird because when I I I, be, uh, I begin my my comics uh, job, you know, I I'm here today and it's just yeah I feel weird about that. <laughs> and I practice my English and it's it's hard, but I'm here for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> for more information about the graphic novel, it's hard to be a girl by Back please go to soaringpenguinpress.com. And I'd like to thank Nora Goldberg from Soaring Penguin for translating some of the interview with Back from French into English and back again. Finally, in today's show, I'm interviewing Stuart and Catherine Eminen, a husband and wife team who have worked together and apart on such Marvel comics as Next Wave, Herald's, Hellcat and Fear Itself, and we're also discussing their webcomic Moving Pictures and latest independent graphic novel Russian Olive to Red King. The two of you uh, are quite well known for working on American superhero comics, but being Canadian, do you feel that there's anything of your own culture that you bring as a perspective to American comics? <laughs> I started with the easy no, question. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because it's, um, that's a question that actually hasn't come up for a while, but although it is, a, it is uh, something that does get asked, I just haven't, I don't have a, an elevator answer for this one. Um, I think the short answer is, is no um, in terms of the, the mainstream stuff uh, that we do. There's, there's certainly a lot, of, uh, a lot of people in the entertainment business who travel across the border um, so you know by no means is it a unique uh, thing that happens mm. um, and even in you know specifically in comics there's a long history of publishing being in the US and talent coming from Canada um, to participate mm. well and don't forget too that um, you know in terms of you know mainstream comics or the comics that we grew up with if it wasn't Asterix or or Tintin, uh, especially for me, and that's because um, I grew up in Ottawa, which is, mm. we had a, a heavy French component in our schooling, and so reading those comics was actually a way to cheat to get around our reading requirement. Um, but the comics that we grew up with were American comics. It's not mm. like there was a Canadian section in your corner store that you would buy those books. I mean, we were reading Daredevil and X-Men and all of that, so in terms of our early mainstream comics education... It was American sure. comics. Yes, the industry is definitely based in, in the States. Um, but as far as, you know, what our sensibility is or what we might bring to it, I don't know that it's, it shows a particularly unique flavor. Mm. Um, not one that's country-based, I think, you know, generally speaking. The work that we do together, I think you have to be predisposed to a certain kind of melancholy <laughs> for it to, to resonate with you. But that's, you know, that's certainly not a, a national characteristic <laughs> well in terms of you know you said uh, there wasn't exactly a Canadian graphic novel section in your local comic shop but I suppose 
in recent years, the likes of Seth and Brian Leo Malley have very much put uh, Canada on the map as a place uh, where Canadian creators can create graphic novels that have a distinct identity. Sure. I mean, you've been working on a webcomic uh, called Moving Pictures for a number of years, and there have been a couple of original graphic novels that have come out since, uh, authored by the pair of you, uh, Never As Bad As You Think, and uh, Russian Olive to Red King. Um, do those continue the story from the webcomic, or are they original graphic novels? No, they're completely separate. Okay. Um, it's uh, never as bad as you think. Was actually uh, an exercise that uh, after moving pictures, Stuart and I just wanted to, to do something. Uh, it, was, it was more experimental and, and less structured. Yeah, although, yeah. It, in a sense, it was all structure, all structure. and no story. Yeah. <laughs> it was very bite-sized. It was based on um, there was a, a I don't think it's running anymore a website called Illustration Friday, and so there would be a, a keyword, a trigger word for. Hmm. Um, Participants for the following week, so we just used Illustration Friday's word keyword as a the, the foundation for the strip for that week, and then um, we put it together, sort of like um, oh shoot, what's the film I'm thinking of with the slacker? Yeah, so uh, which is a film where you, uh, the structure of it is essentially that you follow characters one to the other, um, and you, you don't revisit the people that you leave, but as they mm. cross someone else's path, then you then your focus shifts and you follow that person and then you, you kind of, you know, weave your way through the story. And so that was interesting. The, the mm-hmm. of it. But that was that was entirely well, it was entirely web based at the beginning and eventually um, was collected and printed. Mm-hmm. Um, and moving pictures while it was uh, uh, serialized online, the the intent from the beginning was that it would be a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if it, it didn't really work online as well as it might have had it been designed that way. But um, uh, what we did with the internet was just use it as a, a mechanism by which we were able to uh, force ourselves to complete the story because moving pictures and, and all our uh, books independent of uh, working for Marvel or whomever... Um, are basically done in our so-called spare time. So uh, we just need... uh, It's easier when there's a bit of a motivation. So um, having moving pictures come out once a week, regardless of whether we really wanted to do it that week or not, was a great um, motivator for for getting it done. Um, But it was really always thought of as a book from the script on. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> um, uh, Stuart, you've been working in independent comics since the late 80s and then mainstream comics since the early 90s. Uh, well, Catherine, you're a relative uh, newcomer to the industry. Having... Actually, that's not true. We, oh, really? We okay. started together. Our ah, first comics okay. were, were books that, um, that we did together. And it, you know, when you mention uh, Seth and mm. uh, Chester Brown, which mm. you didn't mention, but I will. Please do. Um, <laughs> In, I, just to go back to your first question, I think that um, it's maybe not so much a Canadian sensibility as it is a Toronto one. Mm-hmm. And when we started um, making comics in the late 80s, the, there was a very, very vibrant scene in Toronto. And you could, you know, you could see Seth walking down the street, you know, and he, uh, 
or, or Chester, and you could go into to shops and, and see that work, and it, it all seemed possible. And I think it was the presence of those individuals, mm. um, those, those two especially, who found their projects early and were incredibly strong voices and, mm. and have been, you know, their, their project has been clear um, from the very early days of, of what they were doing, which is incredible, uh, amazing to us. Um, but but seeing them and seeing that work and seeing those books in the stores is what made it seem possible. And at the time, we also had a distributor in town, which of course now is not at all. You can't you can't just walk into Diamond, right? Which is the only distributor. Mm. But in those days, you could get on the streetcar and you could go to Andromeda's office and show them your little thing, and they would put it in their catalog, and and you could sell your books that way. So I think there is very much a. a a Toronto indie black and white kind of mm. punk DIY thing, which is where we we mm. came from. And I think that's still, or, or rather, that's been resurrected, especially with TCAP, mm. where a lot of people um, who otherwise wouldn't have any kind of venue um, for their work are mm. able to uh, reach a very big audience for that festival. So um, it's it'll be interesting for us here this weekend to be able to see how similar the, mm. the corollary is. Yeah, can you should tell by what shows up, by what people write. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it almost sounds like the same, like half compared to TCAF. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but certainly, yeah, I mean, the audience here seems to be uh, a good mix of people who are into British humour comics, who are into American superhero comics, who are into independent graphic novels. So I think you probably see that, that whole so. mix. Deal. Yes, <laughs> for everybody. That's right. <laughs> uh, that said, um, I mean, in the UK, it's only been a relatively recent phenomenon over the last five or six years that there have been enough British graphic novel publishers that if a, a young creator wanted to make comics, they might be able to make a career in Britain. But before that, it did seem that if a British creator wanted to have a career in comics, they would have to go and work on American superhero comics. I mean, did the pair of you basically have to go through that before going back to more independent work. There's no money in the independent work. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> well, so. there, there wasn't for us. And, and then we realized that early on. Mm. We were not only publishing our own story um, in 88 through 90, but we were publishing an anthology of uh, works by our friends. Um, mm. And uh, it, it was... It was very. It, it was a loss uh, as far as uh, the financial aspect goes. Um, and once we realized that, um, I, I completely shifted gears and, and started showing a portfolio around to, to other publishers, and they were all in the states. Mm. Um, but we never really lost the desire to do stories together and to do work that didn't fit the mold of mm. superhero publishing. Um, but it really just did take, um, well, a sort of confluence of, of things. One was having the internet as a vehicle of, for production, um, and, and the other was uh, just, you know, having a force of will to yeah. decide that if it was going to happen, it would have to happen uh, alongside uh, rather than instead of the, the work that we were both doing um, mm. during the weekday. Well, there's no question that there are, there are breakout books and successful books that are um, that creators can can do and, and you know make um, make their living from. But I think that's on balance, it's quite rare. Mm. Um, and I think just about everybody would tell you that it's a 
you know, there's work that supports other work that you mm. have to do, regardless of how you kind of, you know, mm. figure that equation out for yourself. Mm. Um, well, we were at SBX not too long ago, last month, um, which is another uh, small press show, um, similar to TCAF and Blindcalf. And, um, and someone came to, to our table, and, and uh, a prolific creator, and, and offhandedly said, you know, we're all hobbyists. And, and, most of the, and most of the people there have other sources of income. So it mm-hmm. might be in comics, as in our case, and it might a lot be of people are teaching. doing something else. So um, I think at still at the independent uh, level or in the independent world of comics, there there's uh, it's challenging if you want to make it your sole mm-hmm. career. Um, you know, in our case, it just happens to be that the other thing that yeah, we do is also is also comics. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think the hobbyist's uh, label is a is a true one. In a lot of cases, people do it because they love it or because they feel they they have something to say. Mm. Well, I suppose if you're going to categorize the independent comics and web comics you do as the hobby and working for uh, mainstream publishers like Marvel DC as the day job, mm-hmm. um, at least doing your day job, it, it does seem that a lot of independent creators who straddle that divide do have had, have had, I'm just struggling with yeah, tenses here, um, uh, a favorite superhero title that they've actually secretly wanted to work on uh-huh. anyway. I mean, has that been the case for you and did you get to, to work on that title? Uh, well, in my case, it's uh, I, I have, and, I, and I've been lucky to, to have been able to do so. When, mm. when I was um, deep into superheroes, 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, up to 15, 16, I suppose, uh, I, I have uh, been very fortunate to have been able to contribute back um, to books like X-Men and Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and so on. Um, and, and in fact, I don't. Having worked for DC for ten years and Marvel for eleven now, I don't think there are too many characters that I haven't drawn. So um, this is a question that that definitely comes up a lot. Hmm. Um, but having sort of uh, achieved those goals that a ten-year-old hmm. would have had, uh, I definitely now more concentrate on. on you know, finding uh, interesting collaborations with other people, with mm. writers and other artists, um, and to be able to sequester time for Catherine and I to be concentrating on. Not that you're not one of the favorite <laughs> collaborators, um, but it, it's sort of a default, isn't it? Yes. Of yeah. course we want more time. <clears throat> right. Um, so yeah, the, mm. the things that I'm, I'm thinking about most are, are uh, happy collaborations rather than Mm. Uh, you know what fantasy character mm. would I like to have worked on? Mm. I think I've been surprised enough by um, by the projects that I've been offered mm. uh, that my expectations now are it it seems uh, it seems like not not the right way to go to to chase after characters because the my happiest uh, my happiest times have been they come as complete surprises to me. So, mm. um, when Characters you didn't know at all. Patsy Walker, Hellcat? Well, I, well, I've loved Patsy for forever, so she doesn't <laughs> really count. But, um, you know, uh, Jubilee, the Wolverine mm. Jubilee that we did, mm. and 
the editor called and it's like Ghibli movie. I'm like, right on. And he's like, she's a vampire. Like, what? Why? <laughs> it just seemed absolutely like the most idiotic mm. thing. Um, and, and because we started before that issue had happened, so I, you know, I didn't see it. And I didn't mm. know that it was coming. It's just like whatever. Um, and it was the best time. You know, it, it, part of the job is to is to fall in love with whatever is mm. in front of you and to figure out how to do that. Um, and with, with, you know, with the vampire Jubilee, she just turned out to be like the most spectacular teenage disaster ever. <laughs> it, was, it was a great time, but completely unexpected. Mm. Well, sometimes, you know, even if you love a character, uh, having to approach it via a curveball that's been thrown at you perhaps... Yeah makes you uh, less complacent in writing and you have to think more out of the box, to use a horrible term. I mean, I was talking to uh, Dylan Horrocks and he was offered Batgirl and he was like, brilliant, so I get to, walk, to write Barbara Gordon and then he gets told it's a mutant ninja assassin in an S&M outfit. So it wasn't quite what he was expecting. <laughs> Not so much, Dylan. Not so much. So, yeah, and so what do you do, right? You have to figure out, that's your job, is to figure out you know, what that means to you. I remember talking... Uh, to Matt Fraction when he came on to Thor, and I think he he struggled because you know Thor is, at that point was really not that interesting, and mm. so trying to figure out you know what is it about that character that you can make meaningful and mm. make resonate, um, and sometimes it's really tough, you know. But also what what you liked as a kid, if it was you know, 1975 or 1985 or or whenever, might not be relevant at all right now so mm. the things that you enjoyed are not necessarily going to be of interest to a modern audience mm. uh, yeah, right now so yeah. so you have to cater to that somewhat mm. well then I suppose as well it, it varies from project to project when you're illustrating something like fear itself it's you know another mainstream superhero crossover mm -hmm. but if you're doing something like next wave you can bring more of an indie sensibility to it because you can throw in the humor and sure, other absolutely. artistic references and it allows me to 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 draw in a different way mm -hmm. um, to exploit you know whatever i can i can bring to it and, and um sort of tailor my skills to suit the tone of the story. Mm. So, uh, you know, absolutely, if, if uh, you know, you're, you're uh, collecting every superhero in the Marvel Universe together, it's got to uh, play to the sensibilities of, of the audience expectations. But uh, next wave, nobody knew uh, what to expect, so we could really sort of cut loose a little bit more. Mm. I mean, you said different uh, kind of artistic expression. Do you look towards different artistic influences when you take on different projects? Because certainly something like Next Wave, and indeed uh, your latest graphic novel, uh, hang on, Red King to... R Russian Olive to Red King. So Because <laughs> it sounds like a chess move, and you can't, you think, you're trying to think of a chess move. You're, hang on, there, there aren't any other chess moves. Um, they, they seem to... to sh the kind of the square-jawed look that you've got going on seems to hark back to things like... Uh, I don't know, Jose Munoz or perhaps Ryan Hughes. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there are probably fewer artists around that I dislike than artists I like, so I don't, I'm not comfortable making lists because I always end up forgetting somebody uh, mm. important uh, to me. Um, but, you know, everything I think you can absorb and, and you distill it for a while and sometimes you, 
you'll end up sort of sitting on something that you'd really like to try out mm. and see if it's possible uh, to, to work with, um, but you don't get the chance until the project is right or until um, you've, you've uh, dwelled on, on how you can approach that for a while. Um, and sometimes you just have to make it happen. I mean, in the case of moving pictures, um, because there was no deadline and there was no schedule and there was no definitive page count, it was just kind of uh, open-ended. Um, but um, again, because we were working on it, say, in the weekend or on, in, in spare moments or on holiday or, or whatever, whenever we could, mm-hmm. um, it had to be something that I could... Uh, sort of uh, turn on at a moment's notice and then go back to drawing in a more conventional superhero manner. Um, so we, uh, we talked it over a lot and, and I made four or five different passes at uh, a style that I thought, um, one, I could return to um, over a, a period of days or sometimes longer uh, without having drawn that mm. way. And, and maintain a consistency on it um, but also something that I could do in a very limited amount of time so I only really had one or two days out of seven mm. in order to dedicate to it um, and how well did that plan work <laughs> <laughs> well uh, I, when we again when we serialized it online it it, uh, it, it took a, a almost three years to complete a mm. um, 150 page book um, but it was three years of weekends and, mm. and spare moments. So, um, and it was fine just in order to get it finished. Mm. But when it time to collect it in a book form and it wasn't spread out one page a week, we realized that, or I realized that it, it wasn't quite consistent enough. Mm. Uh, and I don't think there was a page that that was published in the book, in the collected book, that wasn't redrawn to some extent so, um, so it uh, you know as I became comfortable with the characters and as they sort of evolved and as I developed a kind of rhythm into how uh, as to how I was uh, approaching each of them they became more familiar to me and in a sense they became less mm-hmm. like their initial skeleton um, and uh and that was difficult to uh, to realize that that there was still a whole lot of work left to do after three years of spending with these characters. Mm. But it was way more satisfying to to have it be. Yeah, you could uh, have another pass go. We couldn't have let it go the way it was either. So. Hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, we've dis- we've been discussing um, scripts that you've uh, written. Uh, for your husband, but also you've worked with a variety of other artists. That's true. Um, have you, when you've written scripts, has it been with certain artists in mind, or have you said to the publisher, this is the sort of artist I'm looking for? And no, they... the, the teams are always um, in place mm. uh, from, from the get-go. Uh, I think there have been a couple of times where I've started where we didn't know who was going to draw it, but we always knew by the time we got to actually write. So the like the pitch, like the the sort of prose version of the whole this the synopsis for the for the mini or whatever, mm. um, which is kind of a, a 
it's like a, it's more like a prose piece. Um, that's about as far as I've ever gotten before we knew uh, mm. who it was. And then, um, you know, of course it always influences uh, what you're going to do. But I've, you know, in a couple of instances with uh, David Lafuente and Valerio uh, Schiti, uh, I think the work that we did together for Marvel was their first work in the North American market. Um, so uh, Valerio especially, his stuff before we did the um, Journey into Mystery together was some like micro-machines, like some licensed tiny robot property that you would never... Uh, that, it was amazing work, but you know what he brought to Sif and the way we both got that character in much the same way, and all you have to do is look at the number of people who have excised her face from his work, and it's just like these galleries of these amazing expressions that he drew onto her face. You never really would have sort of guessed mm. that it would have been quite so charming as it was. Um, so, in some ways, you know, even though you know, uh, I've had a number of instances where it's really still been an unknown quantity. Um, so that's it's it's been interesting. That's for sure. Mm. There have obviously been women working in comics for decades and decades and decades since awesome. Mary Severin and, and so on. But it seems in the last 20 years there has been a concerted effort to perhaps promote female creators a bit more. So we've gone from panels about women in comics, who knew, to actually it being you know uh, a thing where Marvel and DC are chastised for not giving more jobs to women. Um, I mean, you worked on the miniseries Heralds, which seemed to be a concerted effort to actually get, uh, at least for that short period, yeah. you know, more women involved. I'm trying to remember. I think I'm going to get this all wrong, so I'll get it right on a different day. We'll, we'll talk again. <laughs> but for today, I'm going to say, I think Heralds was actually one of the kind of first... Um, the first books that was that was part of that initiative, and it had all female cast, and um, that was a lot of fun. Actually, uh, I think I think, that I think came there out was people at Marvel. Absolutely, I think initially though there was an element of, of uh, stunt casting. I think um, to these kinds of projects, as far as uh, female creators, uh, but I'm also a huge fan of firm of action. I think mm. I think stunt casting works, right? I think. Yeah that why, why read around this idea that things just kind of change organically is ridiculous, it's nonsense. We know that doesn't work. We know that, you know, sometimes you just have to say, look, it's going to be half men and half women, and away we go. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that we're seeing a lot more efforts towards diversity in the, in, the, in the lineups, in the characters. I think, ultimately, the solution doesn't really lie with that kind of top-down approach. I think that the... Solution to seeing diversity in the books absolutely comes from diversity in the creators, and that's mm. that's where it has to be. And you only have to look at what's happening with books like um, a Ghost Rider mm. is probably a, a prime example. Um, I think he's Felipe. Felipe is is he not? I mean, I think he was born in Argentina and grew up in LA, and his mother's Jamaican, and and he's he brings lived in Japan for years. Yeah, mm. he brings this like completely. Uh, which he's very uh, completely different position for that character, which he's very open about. Um, and when we were out in uh, in California a couple of weeks ago at a at a show there, the the appreciation in the audience from a lot of people, readers of that book, who saw themselves reflected 
in that character in a way that they never had before. And that doesn't come from, um, you know, Marvel or editorial saying, you know, Latino ghostwriter. It comes from the creator saying, this is the ghostwriter that I want to write. Well, it's more about, you know, if you say we need to provide opportunities for people who aren't reflected in the industry, all of a sudden you realise there's a whole wealth of talent that haven't managed to get their foot in the door. I mean, in Britain... Uh, to use a different example, on, say, comedy panel shows. Mm-hmm. They've been almost exclusively male yeah. up until a few years ago, until like the BBC said, we must have at least one woman on every show. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, all the female comedians who haven't managed to get their break, yeah. you know. Yeah, sure. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. and you, you just, I honestly believe that you just have to say, you know, no, this is the way we're doing business now, mm-hmm. and not wait for... It to evolve it, because it, it just it doesn't <laughs> like it. it but it's certainly it become easier. I mean, when when we were working in the in the nineties, you didn't have to live in the New York area anymore to participate in New York publishing, and mm-hmm. it was all done by courier. Um, and so you see the market for creative talent opening up across North America and then over to Europe and Britain and to Japan and South America and so on. And then when the internet happened in the early 90s, then you get another wave of access for people. Um, And it's absolutely become uh, a much more even playing field. In terms of access, but I do still think that just because people are doing that work and it's in the world mm-hmm. it used to, I no. think it still needs to be prescribed in, in some way okay but Marvel has C.B. Sobolski who travels the world specifically mm-hmm. looking for talent mm-hmm. the best talent wherever it may be yeah. so it is proactive sure. mm-hmm. well and not only that I mean no matter how good a male writer is if you get a, a woman to write female characters, there's going to be a, a greater level of insight that no man will ever be able to bring to that. So when you're writing Sif or, or you know, Patsy Walker, then perhaps at least you know, there is a, a greater degree of honesty in writing the character. Yeah, maybe. I think I'm kind of a special case, especially with you know, characters like that. I think, I think my, uh, my penchant for the wacky is maybe... Probably overrides anything. I don't know if that has anything to do with my gender, particularly. Um, I think that's just me. Uh, So, but yeah, maybe. I I think, uh, yeah, Sif, you know, Sif is certainly an interesting case when you think about, you know, how big that character looms in the universe and Mm. she's this huge presence, but then when you actually look at the amount of story real estate that she's taken up until that point, it's very, very small. So you have to kind of ask yourself why, which is a rhetorical question because we know why. Um, so when you get the opportunity to do that character, you just have to you know, let her rip for the mm. time that you've been given because it will be finite um, and make your stamp, you know, make that footprint for her as big as you possibly can mm. um, because it's not going to last. So you, you know, hopefully you can like, establish something that's compelling and strong enough and entertaining enough that the next person who you know needs to use that character mm. has been given a foundation that they find attractive and useful. And presumably you also have to bear in mind that with a character like Sif, because her popularity has been as much down to Jamie Alexander as the previous appearances in comics, you have to tailor, tailor it to fans of the movies and the TV series as much to people who have been reading comics for 30, 40 years. Yeah, except you, know, you can probably count 
Jamie Alexander's, you know, dialogue on one hand. It's still, <laughs> it's, you know, it's her, her presence in those films. It's just, it's a, it's appallingly slight. Mm. So, which is, uh, I think, unfortunate. But like a Warriors Three Sith, mm-hmm. something. But if people do come to comics from their experience with the movie versions, and I'm not sure that that happens as much as we would like. Um, <coughs> I think what you said before applies. I think that our, our goal is to make it twice as entertaining, yeah. if not more. <laughs> as juicy um, as possible. Yeah, because the the volume of material is not... I mean, comics are, are an expensive medium, um, almost as much as a movie ticket, and, and why you get to have it and keep it forever. Um, it, it's, it's over far more quickly. Yeah, it's, it's maybe a 15-minute read or a 20-minute read. Um, instead of a two and a half or three hour movie so um, I think I think the days of uh, of a very dense comic read are probably uh, over or perhaps waiting for a resurgence the comics that we read in the 70s and 80s were were very dense mm-hmm. um, many more panels per page and lots and lots of dialogue mm-hmm. um, and that that has fallen out of fashion right now but there are other ways that you can have an impact. So, uh, but I do think that that it's uh, incumbent on us to to try our very hardest to to snag people whenever we can um, with uh, as much pyrotechnics as we have available <laughs> to us. Uh, probably less pyrotechnics. <laughs> um, we've mentioned a couple of times uh, your latest graphic novel Russian Olive to Red King uh, I've downloaded the 11 free pages off the internet but that probably doesn't give a great indi- indication of where the plot's going to go because so far we just have a man a woman and a dog hanging out in bed <laughs> why is that not enough for well it, I mean it's beautifully drawn and written but I'm, I'm curious to know what happens next <laughs> um it's uh, there's a plane crash early on in the book that she's involved in, um, and then uh, it's it's really after that point when they're separated, it becomes these parallel journeys. Um, her her journey to the inevitable, back to him in whatever form that may take, and his journey to the realization that his life is never going to be the same again. In the absence of any hard information, it's just something he. He suddenly knows and feels, um, and then at the so that's the first two thirds of the book, and then the the last third is a way more unconventional approach to comic storytelling, uh, which is largely prose based. So there's a narrow column of strip of a narrow column of prose on each page, and then there's a, a there's like a a panel, there's a visual element, a panel element on the bottom of each page. And it's, that's his, it's his letter back to her, essentially, when it's probably too late to have been you know, telling his story. And then there's a big, uh, big punchline, visual punchline, at the end of that. So if you do read the whole thing, please don't flip ahead. Uh, but so it, that second half, it's, I think a lot of people got stopped when they when they, they finished the, the first more conventional looking comic part, they turned the page and were confronted by this kind of deconstructed mm. comic. Well we could probably cope in Britain because we had Rupert the Bear, but uh. Yeah, it's more you know, why I hate Saturn maybe or um, <laughs> Yeah, but it, it's 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 very it, there is def- there's a definite break there. Um, but I think people who have uh, 
moved on through it to the end, it's been a very satisfying experience from what we've heard. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very unconventional book. We had when we were doing the the um, the the run up to it, we had to do the publisher stuff and pick genre and have it categorized and whatever. <laughs> and none of us were like, I, I don't know, it's like a ghost romance <laughs> which it isn't no not it's, really it's, we yeah we definitely had a tough time categorizing it ourselves mm-hmm. um, yeah uh, <laughs> I mean I suppose that's a good thing in a way that in bookshops until five years ago you had genres for books without pictures and then you had the graphic novel section right. so at least if there are now recognisable genres in graphic novels I suppose that's a positive thing even yeah. if it, it creates a, you know, a quandary for the creators I don't know what it's like here for, for with big retailers but you know at home they still don't know what the hell they're doing with those, mm. those sections are a mess I don't know how anybody finds anything and we've seen like stuff racked alphabetically by title like a, yeah, a so Batman next to Bacchus. You know? yes. <laughs> yeah. Super helpful for everyone yeah. involved, right? And you know, and it, you know, it's the differences in the sizes and the racks are not really sort of built for those books, and it's just, uh, it's just kind of tragic all the mm. way around. I don't think it helps uh, the customer, you know, and it certainly doesn't help people who don't know anything about it because if you didn't know what you were looking for and wandered into that section, it, it just looks like a joke. Mm. It looks like nobody cares about it. So it's not surprising that it's sometimes a tough sell for people. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank oh, you. <laughs> for more information about the graphic novel Russian Olive to Red King by Stuart and Catherine Immonen, please go to adhousebooks.com. That's adhousebooks.com. And Catherine and Stuart Immonen's blog can be found at immonen.ca. That's I-M-M-O-N-E-N dot C-A. All of today's interviews were recorded at the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, which will be taking place again next October in Kendall. And in the meantime, you can find out more information about the festival by going to comicartfestival.com. And there'll be more interviews I recorded at LICAF, including Steve Bell, Stephen Appleby, Boulay and more, in forthcoming episodes of Panel Borders. In the meantime, there are various comic book events taking place at some of the excellent retailers in the centre of town. At Gosh Comics, 1 Berwick Street, on the 9th of December, there's the last of this year's Comic Goship events, a reading group taking place in Gosh, where in December they'll be discussing the latest Asterix album, as well as taking part in a special Christmas quiz based on some of the best comics that have been released over the last year. That's on December the 9th from 7pm. On the 11th of December, they have a signing of the new graphic novel Feast by Backwards Bird, and that's taking place at Gosh. And then the next day, on the 12th of December, Jake and Kieran Gillen will be talking about and signing their Star Wars titles, How to Speak Wookiee and Darth Vader. Finally, if you just can't get enough of comics and Christmas events at Gosh, on December the 16th from 7, there's a special superhero quiz night based on the DC and Marvel universes with a variety of festive prizes up for grabs. For more information about all things Gosh, please go to goshlondon.com. 
at Orbital Comics, 8 Great Newport Street, near Leicester Square Tube. They have an exhibition showcasing the work of the artists involved with the new South London publisher Avery Hill. And that runs from the 12th of December to the 3rd of January, with a private view on the 12th, including a Christmas party. A few days before that, Orbital is launching the new Decadence Comics titles, The Four Reptiles of the Apocalypse by Lando, and Sembolides Pilot 1400. On December the 9th, they'll have the entire Four Reptiles of the Apocalypse comic on display in the shop, and the signing starts at 7pm. On the 12th of September, actress and graphic novelist Jessica Martin will be in Orbital, launching and signing her latest title, Elsie Harris Picture Palace. That's taking place on December the 12th from 5.30pm. And then on December the 14th, Burton C. Bell and Noel Gard will be signing their graphic novel, The Industrialist, on Monday the 14th from 5 to 7pm. For more information about all Orbital events, please go to orbitalcomics.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and you can find all previous episodes on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com. And we'll be back at the same time on the second Tuesday of next month. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.